You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 110, Barbarians. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start this episode by thanking our Patreon subscribers. Without you, I would not be able to keep this thing going. We are still offering monthly bonus episodes to paid subscribers. We are finally finished talking about the Napoleon movie. The last installment included discussions of queer life in Napoleonic Europe and the finer points of bayonet combat. I hope you'll join us. Anyway, we left off last time in late 1807. Napoleon had just signed the Treaty of Fontainebleau, a secret agreement with the sausage maker, Spanish Prime Minister Manuel Godoy, securing Spanish support for an imminent French invasion of Portugal. As we discussed, the Portuguese wanted no part of this war. They had done their best to appease Napoleon without jeopardizing their long-standing friendship with the British. But in the post-Tilsit geopolitical climate, that was a hopeless task. The smaller powers of Europe had two choices— join Napoleon's continental system and make enemies of the British, or defy the emperor and hope British support or diplomacy could get them out of any consequences. As you can probably imagine, in all the minor capitals of Europe, both French and British diplomats were busy twisting arms, competing to come up with the most enticing offers of alliance and the most credible threats of force. We've already talked about the Portuguese case. So I'd like to start this episode by backtracking a bit, to talk about another country where this competition was growing increasingly fierce, Denmark. We last discussed Denmark in episode 58 when we covered the League of Armed Neutrality, that coalition of neutral states led by Russia that was trying to pressure the British into easing their restrictions on trade with France back in 1800 and 1801. The League had been broken up in dramatic fashion, partially as a result of the murder of Emperor Paul I of Russia, and partially by a daring Royal Navy attack on Copenhagen Harbor on April 2, 1801. You might remember this battle as the setting of one of the iconic moments of Lord Horatio Nelson's career, holding up his spyglass to his blind eye and claiming he could not see the signal to retreat. The veracity of that story has been questioned, but it is certainly memorable. Regardless, what the Danes probably remembered from this battle was Nelson threatening to massacre a group of helpless Danish militiamen unless the Danes accepted his terms. Not exactly Nelson's finest hour, but it did succeed in bringing the battle to a close. The Danes had learned their lesson from this defeat. In the years after the battle, they worked even harder to preserve their neutrality studiously avoiding even the appearance of taking sides in the ongoing war. And, in case diplomacy failed, they also worked to improve the fortifications around Copenhagen Harbor. International trade was a big part of the Danish economy. They were perfectly happy conducting business with both sides, and they wanted to keep things that way. Denmark actually had a pretty good military for a small country. As you might remember from episode 58, they had fought tenaciously against the British six years earlier. Remember, they had come so close to winning that battle that the British commander actually sent the signal to retreat. Had Nelson not ignored that signal, 
it would have gone down in history as a British defeat, or at least a bloody draw. However, almost winning a single battle is one thing. Actually resisting sustained military pressure from France or Britain would be quite another. No one was under any illusions that Denmark could actually win a full-scale war against one of the great powers. The events of late 1806 and early 1807 made Denmark's position even more difficult. As French troops swept across Germany, they arrived right on Denmark's doorstep. At this point in history, Denmark controlled two small German duchies, Schleswig and Holstein, just south of the modern German-Danish border. The French stopped short of occupying these, but they garrisoned a large number of troops right on the border. The message was clear. Napoleon could order an invasion at the drop of a hat. After the Treaty of Tilsit, France and Russia began ratcheting up the pressure. As we've discussed, they wanted all neutral countries in Europe to join the continental system, but the Danes were of particular interest. The only entrances to the Baltic Sea are through a series of very narrow belts, all of which pass through Danish waters, and in the early 19th century, all of these belts into the Baltic were well fortified and carefully controlled by the Danish military. If the Danes could be induced to ally with France, Napoleon would be able to cut off the entire Baltic Sea from all British shipping. With only a few narrow and well-guarded passageways into the Baltic, smugglers would have a very hard time passing undetected. There was also the matter of the Danish fleet. As a small power, the Danish navy was nothing compared to the French, Spanish, or especially British navies. However, they were among the best regarded of the secondary maritime powers. Danish officers and sailors were generally experienced, well-trained, and well-motivated. Their ships were generally modern and well-equipped. And perhaps most importantly, the country had a significant maritime economy and a long-established seafaring tradition, which meant they had good facilities for building, repairing, and maintaining their ships and a large pool of experienced mariners from which to draw recruits. The main Danish fleet at Copenhagen boasted 18 ships of the line, the big battleships that dominated Napoleonic-era sea battles, plus dozens of smaller support ships. To put that in perspective, at the Battle of Trafalgar, Nelson had 27 ships of the line, and at the Nile, he had 14. So this was a relatively sizable force, big enough to fight in a major battle but still nowhere approaching the navies of the great powers. Napoleon had invested huge resources into rebuilding his navy after Trafalgar. Bringing the Danish navy into the war on the French side would be a big step towards parity with the Royal Navy, not to mention all the help the Danes would be able to provide in the form of naval supplies and shipbuilding facilities. And so, securing an alliance with Denmark became one of France's top foreign policy priorities. Napoleon got his new friend, Emperor Alexander of Russia, to apply pressure as well. Napoleon was hopeful that the right combination of diplomatic pressure, favorable terms, and the implicit threat of French troops just across the Holstein border would produce the desired outcome. Of course, London was not blind to this threat. The British could read a map as well as anyone, and they had learned the capabilities of the Danish navy from bitter experience back in 1801. The British made their own offer to the Danes, a treaty of alliance with favorable terms, if Denmark agreed to turn its navy over to the British and put all its maritime facilities at the disposal of the Royal Navy. The British promised to return every Danish vessel at the conclusion of hostilities, but still, this was a huge ask. Denmark was a maritime country, and not only that, much of its territory is actually separated by water, so surrendering control of its entire navy would not only be a blow to the national pride and prestige, it would severely curtail Danish sovereignty. The country would effectively become a vassal state of Britain until those ships were returned, assuming that ever happened. It was not an attractive proposition, to put it mildly, and the Danes refused. Accepting Napoleon's deal would at least leave Denmark in control of its own navy, but at this point in our story, 
The rulers of every European country knew full well that signing an alliance with France meant accepting a great deal of French influence over their country. Today, all Napoleon wanted was Denmark's military and commercial cooperation against Britain. Tomorrow, he might ask them to adopt his civil code, or curtail the power of the church or the nobility, or adopt some other newfangled French innovation. He would probably want a French garrison in the country, which would certainly be unpopular and cause problems, and the Danes would probably be expected to pay for the privilege. So this path would also probably lead to an erosion of Danish sovereignty. War with Britain would also almost certainly mean the loss of Denmark's small but lucrative colonial empire and major damage to its international trade, which was a big part of the economy. And so the Danes rejected Bonaparte as well. They would defend their neutrality with the limited means at their disposal. Fortunately for the Danes, their country was quite defensible. If the threat came from France, they would invade by land from Germany. The Danish army was small and relatively inexperienced, but they would only have to defend a very narrow strip of land, where the Danish territory of Holstein met French-occupied Germany, an area only about 75 miles, or 120 kilometers, wide. Fighting on the defensive on this narrow front would do a lot to even the odds. If the British came, they would likely do so by sea. As we discussed in episode 58, Copenhagen Harbor was very well defended, both with man-made fortifications and natural hazards. The last time the British had attacked Copenhagen, they had failed to destroy the Danish navy, and only achieved a partial victory by using an underhanded tactic. And so, in the spring and summer of 1807, Denmark found itself in a very strange position. It was likely that before the end of the year, the country would find itself at war but there was no way of predicting who they would be at war with. It seemed roughly equally likely that they would find themselves fighting the British alongside the French, or fighting the French alongside the British. In the summer of 1807, London decided to force a decision. They began organizing an expedition to Denmark, to be led by General Lord William Cathcart, a highly regarded soldier, politician, and nobleman. There would be a large squadron of warships, along with several brigades of ground troops. The British hoped that the presence of this considerable force would act as both carrot and stick, show the Danes that if they chose to defy France, British help would be immediately forthcoming, but also that if they chose to throw in with Napoleon, the British were prepared to make them pay. Cathcart had orders to continue the government's diplomatic overtures. However, he also had secondary orders. If the Danes continued to refuse British terms, he was to seize the Danish fleet by any means necessary. Failing that, the fleet was to be destroyed, to prevent it from falling into Napoleon's hands. Many within the British government were deeply uncomfortable with the idea of an unprovoked attack on a neutral state. King George III himself vetoed the operation, but was eventually convinced to give his approval after a personal visit from the Prime Minister. As news of the upcoming expedition spread among the officer corps, it set off a wave of excitement. Despite being at war with France for nearly a decade, there had not been many opportunities for the officers of the British Army to distinguish themselves. They were restless and desperate for action. Every redcoat officer was pulling every string at his disposal to obtain a posting to the expedition. One young general actually threatened to resign his commission if he was not given a command. It worked. 38-year-old Sir Arthur Wellesley would lead one of the infantry brigades. We will have a lot more to say about General Wellesley in future episodes. When the expedition arrived in Denmark, they found the Danes quite accommodating. They were free to buy supplies and provisions, and the officers were even able to play tourist in the picturesque Danish coastal towns. It must have been a very strange atmosphere for all involved. At some point in the near future, they would either be allies in a life-or-death struggle, or mortal enemies. But for the time being, there was not much going on, the British needed provisions, and their bored officers needed something to do. Lord Cathcart reiterated Britain's demands to the Danish government. 
but it seems the presence of the expedition did nothing to change Denmark's position. Once again, they refused to hand over their fleet or sign an alliance with London. And so, the leaders of the expedition began formulating a plan of attack. Lord Cathcart made it clear that he despised the idea of attacking a neutral state, and it seems most of the senior leadership agreed. Setting aside the moral issues, there were some huge tactical concerns as well. As Nelson had learned six years earlier, a direct assault on Copenhagen Harbor was an extremely dangerous proposition. Even Lord Nelson himself, who was practically a saint among the British officers, had failed to destroy the fleet, and very nearly lost the battle. Surely the Danes had learned lessons from that experience, and a second attack would be even more difficult. One British officer had an idea. It was a distasteful idea, but then again, this whole enterprise was distasteful. He suggested the expedition land its ground forces in the open country outside the city, surround Copenhagen, and place it under siege. If the Danes still refused London's terms, the British could then bombard the city into submission effectively turning the roughly 100,000 civilian residents of Copenhagen into hostages. Whatever moral scruples the rest of the leadership may have felt, no one had a better alternative. And so, they began planning an assault on the civilian population of a neutral city. Lord Cathcart made another overture to the Danes, hoping to avoid having to execute this ugly plan, but once again, he was rebuffed. And so, in the pre-dawn hours of August 16, 1807, the Redcoats began landing outside Copenhagen. The war had come to Denmark. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Copenhagen was well fortified, and so the British had to proceed carefully, using that time-honored tactic of gradually closing the noose, moving their siege lines forward bit by bit, advancing gradually on the city, while never giving the Danish gunners a good target. Progress was agonizingly slow. This type of operation never went very quickly, but after a few days, consensus emerged among the British officers that Lord Cathcart was to blame. It has been suggested that Cathcart was deliberately dragging his heels. He had made no secret of his disgust at the immorality of this mission, and perhaps he was hoping that if he moved slowly, the Danes might cave to London's demands or some other intervening event would change the situation, and he would be spared the repugnant duty of ordering the bombardment of innocent civilians. But if that was his goal, he only succeeded at annoying his own officers and destroying his reputation as a competent leader. A member of his own staff wrote, quote, For my own part, I would not be obliged to do business again with Lord C. in the field for any consideration upon earth and my colleagues about him are all of the same feeling. End quote. Perhaps that officer was right, and Cathcart was not dragging his heels, but simply incompetent. In any case, within days of their landing, a mood of frustration seems to have predominated among the British officers. I think perhaps there was a little projection here. Few of them were proud to be part of an unprovoked attack on a neutral nation. They probably wanted to get this shameful duty over with as soon as possible. As for the average soldiers, they behaved as bored troops in a hostile foreign country often did, causing trouble and looting. One British officer lamented, quote, At least you would imagine that the discipline of the army was preserved. No such thing. The villages around our lines give damning evidence to the contrary. 
and the outrages committed by our troops are worthy of a band of Cossacks. What were the steps taken to repress this spirit of indiscipline? Courts-martial were assembled, and, instead of the culprits being executed in front of the army as an example to the rest, the tender feelings of his lordship would not permit him to approve a court-martial, but they were all sent home to England. End quote. In fairness to his lordship, those men actually were punished upon their return, and in fact, several were hanged. But as you can see, Cathcart's fellow officers were no longer giving him the benefit of the doubt. Despite the frustration within the British expedition, they had actually caught the Danes in a very difficult position. The Danes had known there was a strong possibility of a British attack, but they had been imagining another naval engagement, much like the one they had fought against Nelson six years earlier. Practically all of Denmark's army was in Holstein, preparing to hold off a potential French invasion from Germany. There were no reliable army units anywhere near the capital, and the only way to move the men from Holstein to Copenhagen was by boat, where they might easily be intercepted by the Royal Navy. But the Danes would not go down without a fight. They threw together an improvised army of semi-trained fresh recruits and part-time militiamen probably somewhere around 8,000 men. This force began raiding around the rear of the British siege lines. By this point, the British had as many as 25,000 men around the city, and these were well-trained regulars, from some of the best regiments in the British army, many of whom had combat experience. Still, the Danes could not sit idle while their new enemies strangled the capital. Something had to be done, even if the odds of success were small. By August 29th, this roving amateur army had become enough of a nuisance to the British to warrant a response. Lord Cathcart sent General Wellesley and his brigade to find and destroy the Danish army. Wellesley's men caught up with them near the town of Coo, just southwest of Copenhagen. The general ordered an attack. The 95th Rifles, made famous by Bernard Cornwell's sharp novels, would lead the assault in skirmish formation followed by the Gordon Highlanders in close order, to press the attack home. The opposing Danish force was not terribly menacing. One British officer remembered, quote, They appeared poor raw troops, and we could not help but smiling at the indifferent figure they cut. End quote. No surprise, almost as soon as Wellesley's assault began, the Danes broke and ran. The British pursued them for miles, and by the time the fighting stopped, a quarter of the Danish force was dead, wounded, or captured. Most of the rest were completely scattered, and most had thrown away their weapons and equipment, hoping to get away faster. The threat to the rear of the British siege lines was definitely over. Wellesley's brigade only suffered about 150 casualties. In a letter home, a British diplomat who witnessed the aftermath of the battle admitted, quote, in fact, the battle was not a very glorious one, but this you will keep to yourself. End quote. These militiamen were essentially just peasants who'd had a musket thrust into their hands. The government had been able to offer them almost nothing in the way of training or equipment. In Danish, the Battle of Ku is often referred to as the Battle of the Clogs, because so many of the Danish combatants lacked proper shoes and wore wooden clogs instead. No wonder the British were able to catch so many of them. With Wellesley's victory at Coo, the British rear was secured, and they were now free to conduct their attack on Copenhagen when and how they saw fit. The success of the expedition was now practically assured, but as you might imagine, Wellesley didn't get much acclaim for defeating this pathetic force, in the course of a mission many found morally repugnant. If young General Wellesley was hoping to make a name for himself back home, he would have to wait a little longer. When they could, the Danish garrison of Copenhagen made sorties to raid the British siege lines. Some of these attacks had some success, but they must have known they were not doing much more than delaying the inevitable. At this point, that was the best the Danes could hope for. Slow things down, make the British pay for every advance, and pray for a miracle. On September 1st, they ran out of time. The British had now set up artillery batteries close enough to the walls to bombard the center of the city. 
Lord Cathcart issued one more ultimatum. He knew his orders and understood his duty, but everything in him rebelled against the idea of ordering the bombardment. He gave the Danes nearly a full 24 hours to think it over. Once again, they refused. And so, just before sunset, September 2nd, 1807, the British guns opened up on Copenhagen. The bombardment would be carried out in the dark to maximize the terror and confusion. Over 2,000 rounds were launched into the city that night. Fires started in several neighborhoods. A British civilian watched from a ship just offshore. Quote, the city was on fire in three places. I never saw, nor can well conceive, a more awful yet magnificent spectacle. I cannot describe to you the appalling effect it had on me. Our cabin was illuminated by an intensely red glow, then suddenly wrapped in a deep gloom as the flames rose and fell, while the vessel quivered and every plank in her was shaken by the loud reverberations of the cannon. Alas, poor Danes, I could not but feel for them. End quote. The British used a relatively new weapon at Copenhagen, the Congreve rocket. This was a sort of primitive, unguided missile. If you've ever fired a bottle rocket, you're familiar with the principle, although a Congreve rocket could weigh up to 32 pounds, or 14.5 kilograms, packed with gunpowder and tipped with a sharp metal spike. These weapons had actually been developed in Asia. The British had first encountered them in India, and were so impressed by their effect that they adapted the design for domestic manufacture. If you're American, you're certainly familiar with the phrase, the rocket's red glare, from our national anthem. The British had Congreve rockets at the Battle of Baltimore in 1814 as well. That's what Francis Scott Key was referencing in that line. Compared to traditional artillery, the Congreve rocket had a short range and was woefully inaccurate. But they had some real advantages as well. They were light, could be fired quickly. And it was absolutely terrifying to be on the receiving end of rocket fire. They were very loud, screaming through the air like fireworks. And the projectiles could actually be seen with the naked eye. The inaccuracy actually added to the terror. Imagine watching one of these things coming roughly towards your position, knowing that at any moment it could twist in another direction and come straight at you. But perhaps most importantly for the purposes of this discussion, Congreve rockets were good at causing fires, which made them especially effective against ships and in sieges. The Copenhageners passed a miserable, sleepless night, desperately fighting fires, and praying the next cannonball or rocket would land somewhere else. After hours of furious effort, the fires were extinguished, and at eight in the morning, the bombardment finally stopped. Copenhagen had been under fire for about 12 hours. Lord Cathcart and his officers hoped that a night of death and destruction would be enough to bring the Danish government to its knees. All through the day of September 3rd, they waited for an offer of surrender from the city, but they waited in vain. At dusk, the shelling began again. It was a replay of the hellish night before, but this time the fires were worse. Danish firefighters struggled heroically, but they were simply overwhelmed. They lost the battle with the flames. The fires raged all day September 4th, but still the Danes stood firm. Once again, sunset came, and the British batteries opened up on the city, still burning from the previous night's attacks. One resident would later recall, quote, Never, never have I lived through a more terrible night. The sky was full of smoke, which seemed to ascend to heaven, invoking a curse on the barbarians who so ill-treated an innocent people. End quote. Shortly before dawn, the spire of the Church of Our Lady collapsed. This was one of the city's most iconic landmarks, but the overwhelmed firefighters could not save it. Finally, the Danes could take no more. That morning, they agreed to begin negotiations for a conditional surrender, and signaled they were willing to accept the main British demand to hand over the fleet and all naval supplies. During those three nights of terror, around 2,000 civilians lost their lives, including many women and children, representing about one in every 50 residents of the city. Many more were injured. The city's military garrison only suffered around 250 casualties, including wounded, 
The bombardment had been deliberately directed at the civilian parts of the city, not its defenses. Around 400 buildings had been totally destroyed, and many more damaged to varying degrees, some of which would eventually be condemned. Copenhagen was left with scars that would take decades to heal. The Church of Our Lady was so badly damaged that its ruins were demolished to make way for a new church, which wasn't finally completed until 1829. A young British officer who witnessed the negotiations described the damage and the resilience of the Danes. Quote, the spectacle was lamentable and well calculated to rouse every feeling of sympathy. Houses were still smoldering and in part crumbled to the ground. Mothers were bewailing the fate of their slaughtered children, and there was not one but deplored the loss of some fondly beloved relative or friend. Yet they received us with dignified, though cool, courtesy. End quote. As the British demanded, the Danes turned over their fleet. Ironically, many of these captured warships were never actually put into service by the Royal Navy. Several were deemed useless and immediately burned or scuttled, and several dozen more were lost in a storm before they could reach Britain. Still, the expedition had succeeded at its primary mission of denying these vessels to the French. In the coming years, the Danes would extract a measure of revenge. Probably unsurprisingly, in the aftermath of the atrocity, Denmark aligned itself with Napoleon. They had lost almost all their warships, but the country still had a lot of well-trained and experienced sailors and officers. Denmark put these men to good use as privateers and commerce raiders, preying on British merchant shipping. Their French allies captured more tonnage, but they also had more ships. The Danes definitely punched above their weight. As you might imagine, when news of the attack on Copenhagen spread across Europe, it provoked a storm of controversy. Even within Britain, many were outraged by this unprovoked attack on innocent civilians. Former Prime Minister Henry Addington, the Viscount Sidmouth, wrote, quote, We are pursuing a course not calculated to promote our real interests, and one which will make us detested by the world. End quote. Lord Thomas Erskine, a politician from the opposition Whig party, was even more blunt. Quote, if hell did not exist before, Providence would create it now to punish ministers for that damnable measure. End quote. Even King George III called the attack immoral, although he himself had signed off on it. When Napoleon heard the news, he was actually pleased. He saw this as an act of desperation a sign that the British were weak, worried, and flailing. He believed any benefit they gained by neutralizing the Danish fleet would be cancelled out by the tremendous damage done to their international reputation. Ironically, as Napoleon relished the outrage being directed towards Britain, his own plans to attack a different neutral state were already in motion. In only about six weeks, hostile French troops would cross the Spanish-Portuguese border. Granted, the French would not be deliberately targeting civilians, as the British had at Copenhagen, but this operation would be on a much grander scale, and Bonaparte and, and Bonaparte and his generals certainly knew what war meant for the average people caught in its path. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As we discussed last episode, the impetus for this invasion was Portugal's refusal to sever its diplomatic and commercial ties with Great Britain. 
However, as was often the case, as Napoleon thought about this plan, it took on more grandiose objectives. By this point in our story, he had all kinds of ambitions for Portugal, turning it into a new French vassal state, and then using its expansive overseas empire to jumpstart France's own colonial dreams, which had been moribund since the liberation of Haiti. There were smaller prizes to be found in Lisbon as well. The Portuguese fleet, which, much like the Danish fleet, was too small to be a major player on its own, but could have a real impact on the maritime balance of power if France or Britain managed to get their hands on it. And of course, there was the Portuguese treasury. Portugal might not have been an economic powerhouse, but with its vast colonial empire, it did not lack for gold or silver. This was far more than a simple looting expedition, but all that hard currency could be a big help to the war effort of whichever power controlled it. And so, there would be a lot of expectations on the force assembling in southwestern France, known as the Corps of Observation of the Gironde, and on its leader, General Jean-Ando Junot. Junot had been by Napoleon's side since the very beginning. Quite literally, he had been one of Bonaparte's personal aides at the Siege of Toulon. Junot and Napoleon had been close for years, but their relationship was strained as of late. As I mentioned all the way back in episode 30, Junot was in the midst of a slow downward spiral. He was in constant pain from wounds suffered in action, and likely also dealing with the aftereffects of at least one traumatic brain injury. This contributed to a self-reinforcing cycle of heavy drinking, psychological distress, and erratic behavior. Almost all of Napoleon's favorite comrades from the old days had received either the title of Marshal of France or a noble title, or both. General Junot's absence from those lists was starting to look a little conspicuous. According to some sources, this assignment to lead the invasion of Portugal was partially a punishment, and partially an excuse to get Junot out of Paris. Around this time, Junot was carrying on an affair with Caroline Bonaparte, Napoleon's favorite sister, and the wife of fellow commander and longtime Bonaparte loyalist Joaquim Murat. Perhaps this was in part a punishment, but it was also an opportunity for redemption. Bonaparte promised his old friend that if the invasion of Portugal went well, Junot would finally get a blue baton and a juicy noble title to match. He would have about 25,000 men at his disposal. This corps was a perfect example of the changing face of Napoleon's military. As we've discussed in past episodes, more and more non-French troops could be found in the ranks, as Bonaparte's allies and vassal states were contributing more to the war effort. Most of Junot's units were French, but there were also large contingents from Switzerland, northern Germany, and northern Italy. The Spanish had pledged about 25,000 men as well, although they would be under independent command, not part of Junot's corps. It was a pretty insignificant force compared to the one Napoleon had led into Poland a year earlier, but the Portuguese army was so small and weak that it was considered unlikely they would offer any serious resistance. In his instructions to the war ministry, Napoleon wrote, quote, There is not a moment to lose to forestall the English. End quote. He was right to be concerned. As the French finalized their plans, London was making its own preparations for a French invasion of Portugal. On October 17, 1807, General Junot released a proclamation to his troops quote, Soldiers, we are going to enter foreign territory. But remember that this is not enemy terrain. The Spaniards are faithful allies of the immortal Napoleon. You know, soldiers, how much I care about discipline. I have always regarded it as the sure guarantee of victory. It is by discipline that a soldier deserves the esteem of friendly peoples, just as it is by his courage that he conquers the admiration of enemies. You know my attachment to you. You are sure that you will not want for anything, as long as it is in my power to give it to you. I will severely punish disorders. I will do justice to all with the most rigid impartiality. Observe military regulations exactly. March well in order. May the inhabitants of Spain have no complaints against you. Be as wise, as disciplined in crossing their country, as I am sure to find you brave on the day of honor. I ask you to deserve your esteem. 
Also ensure for me that our emperor can say, soldiers of the army of the Gironde, I am happy with you. End quote. Given what had happened the previous year, I'm not sure it's totally accurate to call the Spanish faithful allies of Napoleon. But setting that aside, Junot was clearly worried that discipline might break down on the long march through Spain. If his troops took to looting or other abuses of the locals, the whole mission might be jeopardized. With the help of the Spanish, this mission was pretty straightforward. Without Spanish help, this would be a small force strung out in rough country cut off from home. There would be all kinds of complications, and it would probably prove impossible to push on to Lisbon. As the corps marched into Spain, they got a mixed reception. There were incidents of disorder among the troops, and a suspicious number of French foragers and stragglers disappeared, presumably killed by Spanish peasants. However, the leaders of the corps managed to keep a lid on things. The Spanish would not turn on their allies, at least not yet. However, that's not to say the march was easy. We tend to think of Iberia as warm and sunny, but northern Spain in late fall means rain. Unceasing, torrential rain. And, as we discussed last episode, Spanish infrastructure was almost universally bad. Junot's men spent weeks slogging through the mud and making torturous crossings of raging rivers. In this sparsely populated country, food, shelter, and even firewood were often hard to come by. And the further they got from France, the less reliable their supply lines became. Sometimes the men had nothing to eat but the acorns they found under the trees that sheltered them as they slept. By November 19th, over a month after leaving France, Junot and the advance guard finally reached the town of Alcantara, the last major Spanish settlement before the Portuguese border. Junot tried to hire guides to lead the army over the border and into Portugal, but not only was he unable to find anyone who knew the way, he couldn't even find a single person who spoke Portuguese. His maps were no good, and the Portuguese infrastructure was no better than that in Spain. The Corps would have no choice but to stumble blindly into Portugal, point themselves roughly in the direction of Lisbon, and march. After the punishing journey to the border, I doubt many of Junot's men were sad to be leaving Spain behind them, but they might have felt differently if they knew what awaited in Portugal. Every problem the Corps had encountered on the first leg of their journey was magnified many times over as soon as they entered hostile territory. In planning this operation, Napoleon had looked at his maps and traced out the shortest, most logical route between the French border and Lisbon. This made obvious sense, and none of his generals disagreed. But when Junot and his men actually experienced this geography, they quickly discovered it was some of the roughest terrain in Western Europe. There were huge expanses of rocky, mountainous terrain, crisscrossed by deep chasms. Horses, mules, and even men sometimes lost their footing and fell into these chasms, never to be seen again. There were countless streams and rivers to cross. This being the rainy season, all of them were running high. A Swiss captain claimed that he and his men had to ford some kind of body of water 10 to 20 times a day. It seems like maybe he was exaggerating for effect, but you get the idea. If the current was swift, it sometimes carried men away, some of whom drowned. There was not much firewood in this desolate country, so Junot's men sometimes spent all day soaked to the bone, and then, when they finally stopped to rest, didn't even have the luxury of a campfire to dry off and warm up. With their supply lines stretched over hundreds of miles of muddy Spanish roads, food was sometimes not issued for days at a time. When the men did get their rations, they were often incomplete. A French supply officer wrote, quote, It is impossible to describe our situation from Salamanca to Abrantes. We have crossed a hundred leagues of desert and terrible mountains. All the carriages and most of the artillery have been left behind. The horses can no longer walk. For eight days, it has not been possible to make a complete distribution of bread. And today, after three days of deprivation, each soldier will receive one-third of a ration. End quote. 
Usually, when faced with these circumstances, French troops foraged food from the countryside, or bought or stole it from the locals. But in this part of Portugal, these were not really options. This part of the country was barren, practically a desert, as that French officer described it. Not many people lived here, and those who did fled their farms, pastures, and villages, taking everything of value they could carry. The hungry French ransacked these abandoned settlements without mercy, typically stealing anything they could carry and then ripping apart the furniture and pulling doors off their hinges for firewood. The Portuguese peasants got their revenge. Any French soldier who strayed too far from his march column tended to wind up dead. The Portuguese army was nowhere to be found. Portugal's leaders believed their troops stood no chance against Napoleon's veterans. In fact, they were preparing to evacuate, not resist. But with Junot's corps in a completely destitute state, you have to wonder if they had miscalculated. True, the Portuguese army was not among Europe's best, to put it mildly, but they would have had a huge advantage fighting on the defensive in this difficult terrain, with the local people on their side and their supply lines so much shorter than the French. Fortunately for Junot's men, their only enemies would be the conditions and outraged peasants. Still, this was a horrible trial. We've seen this story before in Poland. The French military was a well-oiled machine, but it was calibrated to operate on its home turf, the prosperous, well-developed, densely populated regions of Western Europe. When they had to operate outside these conditions, parts of that well-oiled machine sometimes broke down. Despite the ordeals of the march, by late November, elements of Junot's corps began to trickle into the town of Abrantes, a major settlement along the Tagus River, about halfway between the Spanish border and Lisbon. Here, that difficult, rocky terrain gave way to the relatively easy, open country of the Tagus River Valley. The worst was over. At last, the French had a straight shot to Lisbon. Junot gathered together what troops were still fit to march for a final push on the Portuguese capital. Within a few days, they arrived on the outskirts of the city. They soon discovered they had been too slow to achieve many of their objectives. The Portuguese had not been idle while Junot and his men struggled through the rugged highlands of central Iberia. Almost as soon as the French declaration of war arrived on his desk, Portugal's prince regent officially applied for British assistance. As you might imagine, London was happy to oblige. The British had been planning for this contingency, and were ready to spring immediately into action. A Royal Navy squadron soon arrived in Lisbon to begin the difficult task of evacuating the Portuguese government to safety in Brazil. It was led by Sir Sidney Smith, the same officer who had helped foil Napoleon's siege of Acre all the way back in 1799. Apparently, Prince John, the Portuguese regent, couldn't decide on a course of action. His new British allies were begging him to join the evacuation and head for Brazil. The merits of this idea were obvious, but understandably, the prince felt reservations about abandoning his country and his subjects to the French. Finally, Smith showed him a copy of the Moniteur Universel, the official newspaper of the French government, which had prematurely announced that the prince had been deposed. Knowing what his fate would be if he stayed made the prince's decision easy. He left for Brazil. By the time Junot's exhausted vanguard arrived outside Lisbon, the evacuation was in its final stages. The Portuguese royal family, the court, the upper echelons of the government, and the treasury were all on their way to South America, out of Junot's reach. Napoleon's orders had emphasized the need for haste, to forestall the English, as he put it. They had not moved quickly enough and had been forestalled. On November 30th, the bedraggled advance guard of Junot's corps entered Lisbon without a fight. The rest of the corps shambled into the city piecemeal over the next few days. After their punishing march, they didn't make much of an impression on the Lisboans. A French officer described the sorry scene, quote, They had at last made their entrance, those formidable warriors, before whom Europe was dumb and whose sight the prince regent had not dared encounter. A people of lively imagination had expected to see heroes of a superior species, colossuses, 
demigods. The French were nothing but men. A forced march of 18 days, famine, torrents, inundated valleys, and beating rain had debilitated their bodies and destroyed their clothing. They had hardly enough strength to keep step to the sound of the drum. End quote. Junot's own chief of staff would later recall, quote, At intervals of one or two days, the shreds of the army's units followed in an ever more desperate state. The soldiers appeared as living corpses. Elite companies of 140 men did not have 15, and eagles arrived with 200 men instead of 2,500. End quote. Despite the shocking state of his force, Junot had succeeded at his primary mission. The port of Lisbon was now closed to British trade. In the coming weeks, smaller columns of French or allied Spanish troops would make similar entrances into the smaller Portuguese port towns. The biggest hole in the continental system had been plugged. But after what they had been through on the march, and after failing to achieve any of their secondary objectives, I'm sure this must have felt like a consolation prize to many of the men in the Corps. As you might expect, Napoleon was not terribly pleased by this result. In a fit of frustration at the Portuguese, he ordered Junot to seize the property of any prominent person who had fled to Brazil with Prince John and imposed a huge indemnity of a hundred million francs on Portugal. This type of indemnity was somewhat understandable in cases where foreign powers had declared war on France, like Austria and Prussia. They had started the war, they paid the price. But it was hard to square how the Portuguese deserved to pay for the crime of being invaded by France. For partially completing his mission, Junot was entitled to part of his reward. In 1808, Napoleon awarded him the title Duke of Abrantes, but he did not receive the coveted blue baton of a Marshal of France. It is worth dwelling on the greater significance of the evacuation of the Portuguese court, treasury, and royal family. The arrival of the refugees from Lisbon on November 27, 1807 would prove to be one of the key turning points in the history of Brazil, and indeed, the history of the entire Portuguese Empire and all of the Americas. I've seen estimates as high as 15,000 prominent Portuguese subjects leaving for Brazil. Broadly speaking, these people were well-educated, wealthy, and influential, people who tend to make their mark on the places they settle. Most of them ended up in Rio de Janeiro, then the colonial capital, which now became the capital of the entire Portuguese empire. Obviously, this sudden promotion from far-flung colonial headquarters to the nerve center of a sprawling global empire meant some immediate big changes. New institutions, new building projects, new infrastructure. But probably more important were the indirect consequences. A European-style royal court of this era had a huge gravitational pull. They drew all kinds of people, institutions, and ideas into their orbit. These well-heeled refugees were used to a certain lifestyle. They wanted to live in fine houses, enjoy high culture, consume expensive luxury goods, and educate their children to a high standard. Before their arrival, there hadn't been a very big market for these things in Brazil. Now, almost overnight, Rio de Janeiro became a very lively and important place, the type of city where a businessman or an architect or an artist or an intellectual could make a good living, just like any other capital city of a major European state. All of this new activity also drove up the cost of labor, which led to a surge in immigration. In the past, the Portuguese government had limited immigration to Brazil. Now they encouraged it. They needed the manpower. Unfortunately, this desperate need for cheap labor led them to look for other avenues to obtain workers, namely the transatlantic slave trade. There was a huge uptick in the number of Africans trafficked to Brazil during this period. Tens of thousands arrived every year, enough to completely and permanently transform the demographics of the country. This Portuguese government in exile showed clear favoritism to those who had left Lisbon with Prince John. Generally speaking, the native-born Portuguese were seen as the natural rulers of the empire, 
even if it was temporarily headquartered outside Portugal. However, the practical realities of governing the empire from the city of Rio de Janeiro meant throwing at least a few bones to the local Brazilian-born Creoles. Many of the local Brazilians who came into contact with the administration studied it eagerly and learned valuable lessons. Prince John also declared freedom of trade. Practically speaking, the Brazilians had always traded extensively with foreign merchants, but for most of the colony's history, the government had tried to discourage or even ban this practice in an attempt to give Portuguese merchants a leg up. Now the country could finally take full advantage of its considerable resources and somewhat unique position right at the center of the Atlantic. As you might recall from last episode, before Napoleon's invasion, the Portuguese government had been worried that Brazil might surpass Portugal. They had actually been trying to clip the colony's wings, to keep it small and docile enough to be effectively managed from Lisbon. Now the Portuguese government was working both directly and indirectly to develop Brazil. It could not do otherwise. This process was necessary if the Portuguese Empire was going to hold together and, someday soon, reclaim its homeland, at least so the government hoped. If the Portuguese regime still worried about Brazil someday surpassing the motherland and realizing it no longer needed its political connection to Lisbon, those concerns had to be pushed to the side. For the moment, they had no choice but to build the country up and in doing so, give the Brazilians all the tools they would need to seize their own sovereignty and govern themselves, should an opportunity to do so ever arrive. I think it's probably fair to say that before this moment, Brazil was already on a road that would one day lead to independence in one way or another. By this point in history, that was true of almost every society in the New World. But the arrival of the Portuguese court in 1807 ensured that Brazil's road to self-governance would be unlike that of any other country in the Americas. We'll talk more about this story as it continues to develop. If you'll think back to episode 103, you might recall Napoleon's proclamation to the Grande Armée shortly before signing the Treaty of Tilsit. Quote, you will return to France, covered with laurels, after having acquired a peace that guarantees its own durability. It is time for our country to live in repose, sheltered from the malign influence of England. End quote. Less than a year after that proclamation, France did not seem to be in repose. The peace achieved at Tilsit didn't look durable at all. In fact, the continent was continuing its downward spiral towards chaos and war. Tilsit represented nothing more than the beginning of a new phase in that ongoing process. Far from being sheltered from the malign influence of England, the British actually seemed to be getting better at projecting power onto the continent. As we'll see in the near future, Napoleon's meddling in Iberia would actually give Britain an opening for an even bigger expedition to mainland Europe. In any war, in any era, it is often the innocent who pay the price for decisions made in the halls of power. This is revealed in particularly stark detail in this period of the Napoleonic Wars. The British deliberately killing and terrorizing civilians in an aggressive attack on a neutral state while at almost the same time, their French enemies launched a conquest of another neutral state, this one almost totally defenseless. If they were here to explain themselves, Napoleon and the British ministers would probably say, yes, these were grim, ugly decisions, but leaders of great powers at war are often forced to make difficult choices. Such leaders have the lives of millions on their shoulders, along with the destinies of their countries. With such weighty responsibilities, their primary duty is clear, to bring the war to a successful conclusion as quickly as possible. You can't even make the argument that they must be heartless in pursuit of this duty, if a morally dubious decision results in the war ending a year earlier than it might otherwise. Hasn't the greater good been served? But try telling that to the weeping mothers of Copenhagen. Try telling that to the Portuguese peasant families who had to watch their children die of hunger or exposure because French soldiers destroyed their homes and killed their livestock. 
do you think they would have taken any comfort from the fact that their suffering was necessary due to reasons of state? Would you? You might say, well, that's war, and war is very ugly. But neither Denmark nor Portugal had chosen to be a part of this war. In fact, the governments of both countries had worked very hard to keep out of it. Both Britain and France claimed to be fighting for their rights as sovereign countries, which both claimed were being unfairly infringed upon by their rival. Late 1807 showed how much those principles were really worth in the face of strategic necessity. Not much. As European geopolitics continued its downward spiral towards chaos and conflict, concepts like international law, the rights of sovereign countries, and even the rights of innocent civilians were falling by the wayside. Europe was at war, and in this dangerous state of affairs, power was all that really counted. You could make the argument that at this point in history, France and Britain were the two most advanced and enlightened states in the world. But that Danish civilian who witnessed the bombardment of Copenhagen was right. Their troops were behaving like barbarians. That's all for now. Next episode, we'll continue exploring Napoleon's intervention in Iberia and the British response. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.